Welcome back to the Furs and Frontiers podcast. I'm your hostess, Tracy Walmer, and I'm a living history reenactor. When you ask a black powder rendezvous reenactor what time period they portray, they would say 1822 to 1840. This is because they represent one specific part of the fur trade era, but the fur trade actually starts back much further from that. In fact, furs weren't even the primary resource the Europeans were after. It all started in the mid-1500s with the quest for fish. French sailors and fishermen found that they were ill-prepared for the frigid North American winters, and they traded their European goods to the indigenous people for those incredibly warm robes that they were wearing. With the first of these trades, a network would be established that would very literally shape the nations of Canada and America to be what we know today. So let's go back to the first European settlers in North America. Please note I said settlers. There's little doubt that the Norse were likely the first visitors, but they didn't actually settle into communities, at least not one that impacted the fur trade. And in school, we're all taught that in 1492, Columbus sailed to the New World, but he landed in present-day Dominican Republic and not on the American continent. So we're going to concentrate solely on the North American settlements and their impact on the fur trade. The Spanish founded Santa Fe in modern-day New Mexico in 1607. The English founded Jamestown in 1607. And the French founded Quebec in present-day Canada in 1608. It's this latter settlement in Quebec that would help kick off the fur trade. So prior to this, the fur trade was mainly a Russian endeavor. And from about 500 to 1000 CE, Europeans were getting their furs out of the vast wilderness in Siberia. But as the animal populations were being depleted and the human populations were thriving, the demand increased, and Europeans now had to pay far more for any fur they got, if they could get them at all. So their collective gaze started shifting towards uncharted territories. Here we're going to have our first geography lesson. Before Canada was a thing, the French claimed the territory, and they named it New France. This would have included everything in eastern Canada from present-day Newfoundland and spread about three-quarters of the way across present-day Canada. But it also included most of the top tier of the United States, including the Great Lakes regions and the New England states. Part of the territory even extended south as far as the Gulf of Mexico. And for a long time, the main trade hub of this vast area was Quebec. Now, it's 1608. The French quickly established trade relations with the local indigenous tribes, including the Iroquois Confederacy, the Huron of the Great Lakes region, and the Algonquian tribes that are present around uh, modern-day Quebec and Ontario. And the concept was simple. The natives would trap the beaver around the water sources, they would take it to the traders at those log trading posts, and then using the waterways like a superhighway, the traders would use great big canoes to transport the furs back to Quebec. Now, the men who manned these canoes were called voyagers, and they were some tough individuals. They were mostly hired on when they were in their early 20s, and their job was to get a canoe full of furs from the trapping site to the trading site, most often in Quebec. Some of these treks were hundreds of miles long, and very often the trek involved crossing over land to get to the next waterway. 
This is called portaging, and it involves not only getting the canoe across the land, but also the entirety of their supplies and all of the fur bundles they collected. Now, a fur bundle is a block of compressed furs, and it often weighed 90 to 100 pounds apiece. At a minimum, these guys had to be able to carry two at a time, but some journals show that a few of the voyagers could actually carry four or five at a time. It goes without saying that hernias were a common complaint. Some deaths are attributed to internal ruptures from carrying too much or from drowning, because surprisingly, not many voyagers could swim. The voyagers are going to get their own dedicated episode, because these men are literally the guys who actually made the fur trade happen. So watch for that in coming weeks. Besides these amazing characters, the French brought someone else with them, the Jesuit missionaries. These pacifist preachers would set up a settlement, provide supplies, and all the European comforts of home to the recently converted natives. And then they would just promote all things French while they spread Christianity among the heathens. They had a very impressive conversion rate. Then, in 1614, the Dutch were trying to find a quicker route to Asia and instead landed in what is present-day New York. They set up a trade network there with the Pequots, the Narragansetts, and the Iroquois Confederacy. Something you need to know about the Iroquois Confederacy, though. It isn't just one tribe. The Confederacy was an organized group of five, and then later six, tribes that had banded together for better trade and greater protection. This is the indigenous equivalent to NATO. You pick a fight with one tribe, you've picked a fight with all of them. And if you trade with one, you trade with all of them. Now, the five tribes were the Onondaga, the Cayuga, the Seneca, the Mohawk, and the Oneida. And they're all centered around the New England area and the Mid-Atlantic region. Later, the Tuscaroras will join, but not until 1722. And we're at 1608. So the Dutch are trading with the five tribes in the east, and the French are trading with the Iroquois, the Great Lakes Huron, and the other tribes farther north. And the French are definitely doing better at it. They made great efforts to learn native ways, to speak their languages, to treat the tribes fairly in all of the transactions, and even went so far as to marry into the tribes and become part of the family. The Dutch, not so much. The Dutch were more like, hey, drop your furs on the counter, get your trade goods, and get out. Not all of them, mind you, but enough of them that the Dutch gained the reputation of being aloof and unfriendly. So generally speaking, natives preferred the French as business partners, and this did not bode well for the Dutch trade system. To counter this, the Dutch upped the trade goods that they offered. Now, the French are trading their partners household goods like iron pots and pans, blankets and beads, and the Dutch are trading their partners these same things, but also firearms and ammunition. So generally a beaver pelt was the highest paid fur, and it only took 10 or 11 to get you a new rifle. A great imbalance is forming here, where the Dutch are supplying rifles and the French are not, and I'm sure you can see where this is going. By the 1620s, the Iroquois are heavily dependent on these European trade goods, and the beavers are being taken in great numbers. During the 1630s, the beaver population is becoming depleted, and other species that these tribes depend on are starting to get scarce. So what's a tribe to do? They start looking westward, and the first neighbor who felt the impact of those shiny new rifles they had were the Mohicans. 
They were almost completely pushed out of their ancestral lands by the end of the 1630s, and the Hurons succumbed to the pressure of the Confederacy by the 1640s. So seeing their fur suppliers under threat, the French brought in the military to back these displaced tribes. So from the early 1600s to about 1701, the French and their allies are caught in this sporadic war with the Iroquois Confederacy. This is sometimes called the Beaver Wars, or it's also called the French and Iroquois War. That's not to be confused with the French and Indian War. That's something else entirely. So while all this is going on, England finally gets its act together and it throws its hat into the fur trade ring. Up to now, they've had their hands full. Uh, with Oliver Cromwell and his revolution, followed by the short-lived reign of his son Richard, and then finally just got rid of them all and went to put a monarch back on the throne. But they had beheaded their first monarch, Charles I. So they go to his son, and one of his first acts as Charles II was to get back in touch with his colonies and see what's going on over in the New World. By 1664, the English have taken over Manhattan, the Dutch are displaced, and the Iroquois Confederacy now has a new trading partner in the English. But the Confederacy also has a big problem. The Dutch are trying to hold on to Fort Orange, which is present-day Albany, and the English are demanding their fair share of pelts. Beavers are now in even higher demand and getting harder and harder to find. So they start grabbing more and more land from their neighbors, and now they're backed by British rifles, and the French and the Western and Southern allies are struggling to hold on. Now we must pause a moment here to learn a new vocab word, coureur du bois. It is a French term. It means wood runners or forest runner, and it's used to describe the men who collected the furs from the natives at these posts and then transported them from one place to another. This is the birth of the trapper-trader in the true sense of the word. These men established networks of trading posts, which they would stock with European trade goods, and they would trade for the furs that the natives brought in. Then they would transport those furs, by either horse or canoe, back to places like Quebec. Now, there are two very, very important coureurs de bois that we're going to discuss here. Please pardon my hacking of their French names. Medard Schwartz de Grosselier and his brother-in-law, Pierre Espirit Radisson. These two coureurs de bois are going to change the face of the fur trade. They had set up a trading post on the Great Lakes area, and their business was booming. Being French and naturally friendly and courteous, there were many tribes who insisted on dealing solely with them. So by the time these two entrepreneurs make it back to Quebec with their massive load of furs, they knew they were going to be seriously wealthy men. On August 24, 1660, they show up at the docks where the merchants are eagerly awaiting this load of furs. And seeing such a huge haul, the governor is instantly jealous, and he's openly hostile with these two men. He declares the two men to be in violation of the law because their trapping license had expired just a few days earlier. So he confiscates the entire load. The two appeal the actions, and they end up in court for the next few years, and finally they lose the battle. So in 1670, they decide to find another sponsor. They appealed to the British government for backing, and they were rewarded with the first royal charter of the New World. Prince Rupert, the cousin of Charles II, decided to personally back their project, 
and they named the land after him, Rupert's Land. This new charter is the Hudson's Bay Company. Besides having a total monopoly on the French fur trade, they also served as the de facto government in British-held territories in present-day Canada. So while Hudson's Bay Company, which we also call HBC, while they're creating their empire in Canada in the 1670s, another fur trade is kicking off in the southern half of the continent. Remember that Spanish settlement in Santa Fe? The Spanish were creating their own trade networks with the southern tribes for deer hides based out of Santa Fe. Equally as successful, the Russians are set up in the Pacific Northwest, and they're creating trade networks for those really pretty white Arctic furs, as well as a maritime network is being established between the West Coast communities on the Pacific Coast and Canton, which is a trade hub in China. So by the time HBC comes onto the scene, the beaver population has taken a serious hit. The beaver were almost completely depleted in the Hudson's Bay River Basin by the 1670s, so anyone and everyone was pushing neighbors off of their land for new resources. And this, of course, ensures conflict between the tribes once again, and the French allies are now at loggerheads with the British allies. After several decades of this conflict over the same land, these two big imperial rivals ramped it up to a whole new level. You see, two other countries in Europe were at odds with each other, and they were spoiling for a fight. Prussia was England's ally, and Austria was backed by the French, which meant resources from the New World had to be redirected to the New War Front in Europe. So in the name of this Prussian-Austrian conflict, Britain opens up a can of you-know-what on the French Navy and on the French overseas colonies. France had to pull their resources to keep Austria out of trouble, so they left their colonies largely unprotected. In the meantime, both England and France had called dibs on the Ohio Valley. The French had begun building forts, like Fort Duquesne, and the British began attacking those forts and renaming them, like the way Fort Duquesne became Fort Pitt. And then the French had to resort to pinballing around the countryside trying to protect these forts. In the southernmost areas in general, the British were actually having a hard time of it. But in the north, in New France, and particularly in a place called Acadia, they were doing exceedingly well. Acadia is a topic we'll discuss in great detail in a future dedicated episode because its impact on the future of the U.S. is profound. But what you need to know at this time is that nearly 12,000 of the French people who lived in Acadia were forcibly expelled by the British over the course of the French and Indian War, and that most of those did not make it to their final destination. Britain was taking Canada, and they didn't care how they did it. So while the French were doing okay in the west and the south of the territory, the British were succeeding in laying claim by conquest in the east, and they slowly moved west and forced the French out. By 1763, the British now claimed most of Canada, and they were feeling pretty good about their North American empire. And now that Canada is firmly theirs, they look once more to those colonists on the east coast of America just to make sure they're all behaving and they hear these grumbles of discontent. Well, a short two years later, the British decide to get those pesky colonists to toe the line, and they issue the Stamp Act in 1765. Well, if you paid attention in school, you'll remember that this is the point where the colonists collectively lost their minds. 
So from 1765 to about 1783, the colonists really didn't care about the fur trade because they were up to their eyeballs in a little thing called the Revolutionary War. And for the next few years after the war had ended, they were getting down to the business of recovery and rebuilding. But by the late 1790s, things had calmed down. The shiny new United States was established and businesses were coming back. They were booming again. It was then that the Americans realized that they were behind the eight ball in the fur trade. A company had been formed in Montreal in present day Canada called the Northwest Company some 20 years earlier. What's worse is that the Northwest Company was doing well enough to give Hudson's Bay a run for its money. Then in 1799, the Russian-American Company had formed in the Pacific Northwest, and they had established their own trade networks with the natives. They had an issue, however. The indigenous people had already been familiar with the process of trading with the French, the British, and the Dutch, and they had acquired firearms by this time. So when these Russian-American Company trappers were stealing onto the local tribe's land to place their trap lines, they were coming under fire. They appealed to the eastern companies to stop providing the natives with firearms, but we mostly ignored them. It was at this point that an American businessman by the name of John Jacob Astor struck upon an idea. He was going to give them all a run for their money, and in 1808, he formed the American Fur Company in New York City. He was instantly wildly successful, and here's why. First of all, the square mileage of unspoiled land that he had to work with was far more expansive than his British competitors had. And they had been hunting their land for years, nearly exhausting their beaver populations. His hunting grounds were still pristine. Secondly, at the end of the Revolutionary War, everyone still hated the British. So he played on this anti-British sentiment, and he did phenomenally well. In fact, he did so well he opened a West Coast company named the Pacific Fur Company in 1810, and he based it out of Astoria in present-day Oregon. We'll discuss John Jacob Astor at great length in another episode, but the most important thing that you need to know is that this guy was so savvy in his business dealings, he would become the first American millionaire in our nation's history, and that was in the early 1800s. The Pacific Fur Company did pretty well for a while, mostly because of Astor's genius when it came to bargaining. He made an agreement with the Russian-American Company, and it went something like this. The Russian-American Company agreed to use him exclusively as the supplier for trade goods, and he would stop selling firearms to the natives. Through his dealings with the Russian-American Company, he also worked his way into being the guy who ferries the furs from the continent to Asia. I tell you, this guy was brilliant. What he couldn't predict, however, was that the War of 1812 was about to kick off. With resources now having to be redirected, he wasn't able to keep Astoria on top of the game, and eventually the Northwest Company pulled this hostile takeover of his fort. Astor's Pacific Fur Company went defunct in 1813, but his American Fur Company was still going strong. For the next three years, the War of 1812 was the major headline. But by the 1820s, these three major fur companies, which are Hudson's Bay Company, American Fur Company, and the Northwest Company, are in a stiff competition for the best beaver lands. But there are smaller companies doing remarkably well. For instance, the Bent St. Vrain and Company can credit their success to their location. 
they mostly kept themselves around the Southwest, like in present-day Texas and New Mexico, and they seldom came into direct competition with these three big guys. Besides these small proprietorships, independent trappers also got in on the action. These were called free trappers, and they had no allegiance to any one company or nationality. They were free to trade with whomever they wanted, and they could dicker to get the best prices because of this. So we're going to stop here a minute and bust a myth. When you hear the phrase mountain man, it might conjure up the image of some wild-haired, unshaven, unbathed, illiterate cannibal who lives in solitude for the year and then drags himself out of the mountain once a year to trade. That couldn't be farther from the truth. So let's take a quick look at a few of the people involved in the fur trade. First, you have the fur broker. This is the big city guy at the very end of the process who's going to get that big pile of furs and take them to auction. He gets those furs from a trader. Traders might also be trappers, but primarily the trader is responsible for collecting furs from the other trappers and taking it to the broker. And then you have the guy at the bottom of the pyramid, and he is the trapper. Those are the guys that are out laying lines, collecting the furs, and processing them to bundle up and bring into the traders. While the free trapper is an independent, the majority of the 3,000 or so trappers throughout history were employed by one of these big companies. They worked for a set wage, and they often had quotas to meet. They also had to use their wages to buy their own gear and supplies. There are other jobs involved in the fur trade, like engages, which were basically indentured servants, and rummers that processed hides, but they have a place in another episode. Now, the myth that these guys were illiterate is very commonplace. In general, only about 15% of the entire population of the continent was illiterate. These guys were not. Among the trappers and traders, many of them kept very detailed journals and diaries. They wrote letters back to their loved ones and home, and they kept exemplary transaction records and receipts. Some even had degrees and extensive military backgrounds. Often, some of these trappers in their employ would become clerks and scribes for the traders, eventually working their way up to the ownership status. And it's because of these well-educated frontiersmen that we know so much about the time period. Another myth is that they only hunted or trapped during the winter. While it is true that pelts are thicker and warmer in the winter, it's not the only time these trappers were roaming the mountains. They generally trapped year-round, and they were generally out with the entire company, somewhere between 20 to 100 men. Groups of five or ten of them would branch off to work a trap line, usually under the guidance of a more experienced trapper. Then they would all return a few days later with whatever they collected. These pelts were traded in at the trading post for whatever supplies they needed for the next trip. And the process would repeat time and again until the area was exhausted of resources, and then the whole group would move on. Wherever these trappers and traders tended to conglomerate at the river's edges, small towns began to appear. One such town, at the point where the Mississippi River meets the Missouri River, begins to coalesce around 1764. By the 1820s, St. Louis is now a major hub for the fur trading companies. Brokers and traders have all set up shop. Auction houses and businesses offering services geared to the mountain men are well established. And this is great for people who already have an established company and a foothold in St. Louis. 
but not so much for an entrepreneur trying to break onto the scene. So when two partners by the name of William Henry Ashley and Andrew Henry decide to throw their hats into this lucrative fur trade market, they immediately have a problem. They were both well-established and successful businessmen. Ashley was the lieutenant governor of the Missouri Territory, and he was the owner of several successful lead mines. Andrew Henry owned a very successful business making bullets out of the lead that he bought from Ashley. So their market plan was simple. Their fur trading business would depend on the other businesses for its supplies. It would make them rich. The only problem was that they were coming into the game relatively late and they had to compete with companies that already had established trading post networks and were financed by millionaires either at home or abroad. And they knew they were going to have a hard time of it, but their faith was strong. Unfortunately, faith cannot work a trap line, so they needed bodies to go out and work these traps. They took out an ad in the local newspaper called the Missouri Gazette on February 13, 1822. They asked for 100 strong, enterprising men who were willing to work for between one and three years in the wilderness up to the head of the Missouri River. And this 100 strong applicants thus gave them the company name, Ashley's 100. I wonder if they had any clue that these young men that they were hiring would someday become synonymous with the expansion and the exploration of our great country. Uh, we'll introduce you to some of these guys in a moment. So Ashley and Henry begin working their way into the industry mid-1822, and they're doing fairly well. The competition was tough, and it was rather slow going to get enough space for his men to trap. With competing trading posts stacked so close together, the two men knew they were going to have to think outside the box. So the following year, a band of Arakara natives attacked the group, and Ashley and Henry lost 12 of their trappers. The problems were just compounding. At this point, they knew they had to do something. Relations with the natives were getting too volatile, the market was getting too saturated with trappers, and the beaver population was dwindling and they were getting nowhere fast. So they send scouts out to find better territory to trap in, and they're rewarded with great news. There's a country west of St. Louis that is so vast and full of furs that a man can't walk without stepping on them. Okay, maybe that was a frontier exaggeration, but still, you can't blame them for envisioning this fur-laden utopia that was just ripe for the picking. But how do you get supplies from civilized St. Louis a thousand miles out into God's country? Well, this is where Andrew Henry's military genius brain kicks in. Here's how it worked. The trappers would work the land throughout the year and meet up at a predetermined rendezvous point a meeting place where Ashley would meet them with a wagon train full of supplies. And it was simple in theory, but the logistics were quite profound. Thankfully, William Henry Ashley was a prolific journal keeper, and he kept impeccable diaries and transaction ledgers of his travel. So we can actually recreate these events in great detail. For instance, we know that Ashley would leave St. Louis in mid to late March and arrive at the rendezvous point by the first week of July. Keep in mind that prior to this, he'd have to arrange to compile tens of thousands of dollars worth of supplies and somewhere between 100 and 300 pack mules and horses and the wagons and the manpower to get it all out there. 
In one journal dated 1825, he chronicled the entire trip to the rendezvous point in present-day McKinnon, Wyoming, even recording the daily weather. It is a treasure trove of life details for these intrepid mountain men. I will put a link on the website for you. So by that account alone, we know that it took nearly three months to get the supplies on site. He would open trade up sometime around July 2nd or 3rd, but sometimes he would hold off until all of his trappers were present, if there were some still out in the mountains, to ensure that all of his employees were well stocked. The trading would last a week or so until the supplies were exhausted. Then Ashley would return to St. Louis with those same pack animals and wagons now laden down with the furs that the trappers had brought in. And we know from his journals that he would arrive back in St. Louis sometime in late October. So let's take a minute to ponder this trek. Besides having to feed the animals and the men involved in moving such a long train of goods, there's the logistics of protecting these pack lines from thievery. They would have had to deal with setting up and breaking up camp on a daily basis. They'd also have to deal with injuries and illnesses. It's quite the production. Back in 1819, the American Fur Company did attempt a rendezvous-style gathering of their own, but it never seemed to catch on. But for Ashley and Andrew, it worked. Ashley and Andrew were raking in the money at the auction houses, and his employees were making some serious cash. Besides the ability to trade for the supplies at these events, the trappers also had the opportunity to catch up with their friends. It wasn't uncommon for a rendezvous to last a week or two, or sometimes six, well after Ashley had departed. During this time, the men were reminiscing, telling their tall tales, and they were enjoying competitions of archery and hawk and knife throwing. Gambling was common, and I've heard stories about how the mountain men would fritter away a year's wages in a week of drunken debauchery. And while this certainly did happen upon occasion, it was far from the norm. There were actually very strict codes of behavior among the furred companies. And since most of these guys were men of very high honor, they seldom broke the rules. Besides the mountain men, their wives and children would sometimes accompany the trappers not only to the rendezvous, but also out into the wilderness. These were often native wives who served as camp moms that would do laundry and cook and do the mending for the company's men. Because of the number of wives present, Ashley very smartly included pretty fabrics and feminine curiosities like a hand mirror in his inventory of trade goods. And mountain man Joe Meek tells us that the trappers were just as likely to spend money on their wives, their kids, and their horses than they were on themselves. Now, once the festivities were over, the men would pack up their company and head back into the wilderness for another year's labor. We will actually devote more time to the lifestyles of these people in upcoming episodes because it's really interesting to see how much or how little has changed. But for now, we're going to move on. So Ashley and Henry are doing well. The business is making serious bank, and for the first few years, things are working out very swimmingly. Then, in 1824, after a particularly hellish trip, Andrew Henry decides he's too old for this garbage, and he retires back to his quiet, bullet-making life. He wants to sell out his half of the Ashley's 100 company, and one of the young trappers who responded to the original ad steps up. This young man by the name of Jedediah Smith buys out Henry's shares, and the company is now renamed the Ashley Smith Fur Company. For the next two years, life's good, profits are rolling in, 
and by 1826, Ashley's ready to get out of it and pursue his political career, so he sells his stock to two of the other initial applicants, a man named William Sublet and a guy by the name of David Jackson. The new owners renamed the company once more, the Smith, Jackson, and Sublet Firm, and they put out an ad in St. Louis for new trappers. Now, it's at this point that some of the young kids who will become really big names on the frontier sign on, like Joe Meek, Jim Bridger, Kit Carson. And by 1830, those new recruits have saved up enough money to buy out Smith, Jackson, and Sublette. And the young Jim Bridger renames the company once more. This time, the name would go down in history, the Rocky Mountain Fur Company. With the beaver populations becoming more and more depleted, and the demand in the fashion industry swinging radically, the future is not looking good for our new trappers. The Rocky Mountain Fur Company would actually live on another four years, until the growing pressures would force the owners to dissolve the company. But the age of the rendezvous system wasn't over yet. The American Fur Company saw the lucrative profits available, and they jumped in to supply the rendezvous, and continued doing so until 1840. But even then, they couldn't withstand the socioeconomic pressures. And in fact, the only survivor of this 250-year fur trade was the Hudson's Bay Company, which still exists today. So how can a trade that would mold our nation like it did have fizzled out so spectacularly? To understand that, we have to look at what fueled it. Beavers. In Europe, in the early 1600s, fashion industry saw a rise in the demand of the felted woolly fur pelts. Besides being really thick and ridiculously warm, they also have natural oils that help shed water. So as you can imagine, this is great for making outerwear and hats, but not so great if you're a beaver. Part of the decline of the fur trade is that the fashion industry is fickle. Before long, fashion trends start shifting and people start looking for that latest craze. Remember bell bottoms? In this case, the industry shifted away from the beaver felt hats and towards silk hats. Unfortunately, that trend didn't shift in time to save the beaver populations. One account I read stated that Hudson's Bay Company were trapping as many as 3,000 beaver a day. Another said the beaver was completely gone from the eastern half of the U.S. by 1844. And yet a third source estimated that the total number of beaver wiped out during this 250-year fur trade was between 30 and 40 billion, with a B. This would go on record as one of the largest human-caused eco-disasters of our nation. Now, remember those Iroquois Confederacy tribes that depopulated the beaver in the Hudson Valley area by the 1600s? Here's what they didn't know. The beaver are a keystone species, meaning there is no other species that can move in and do their jobs. Think of it like an archway of stones. The keystone is that big guy in the middle at the top that holds all the other rocks in place. If you take out the keystone, the other rocks will fall. So the beaver builds a dam. That dam floods the surrounding land. That creates wetlands that supports the lives of hundreds of species. It's the very definition of biodiversity with many species, including humans, dependent on each other for survival. If you take away the beaver, those other species either die off or they must move elsewhere to find the wetlands. Now the human's large selection of food source is reduced dramatically. 
So now the human has to move to find a new food source, and this vicious cycle begins again. In the case of the fur trade, people had no concept of conservation. It was simply a case of trap until they're gone, and then move on and drop some more. Thankfully, we're smarter than that today. Organizations have made great efforts to reintroduce the beavers back into their natural habitats. And yet other groups have made great progress to preserve the habitats and find eco-friendly ways for us to coexist. In fact, the Fur Institute of Canada, formed in 1983, gathered together representatives from all aspects of society to promote a sustainable future, not only for the fur-bearing creatures, but also for those of us who depend on those furs. Unsurprisingly, education is the key to success. We, as living historians of this era, know the impact that humans had on the environment, and we teach the importance of responsible resource use. We strive to live in harmony with nature, not conquer it. We have great respect for the creatures of the earth, and we see ourselves as stewards of them. Hopefully, through our events and our history lessons, and maybe a few podcasts, our message reaches the ears of future generations. So that's it for this episode. I know I glossed over a lot of history, but I have much, much more coming very shortly. Upcoming episodes will include more on the major fur companies, uh, famous people like Jim Bridger and Jedediah Smith, a couple not-so-famous people like Thomas Fitzpatrick and Simon Gertie, uh, famous women of the frontier like Narcissa Whitman and Isabel Gunn, We'll also look at the forts and the trade centers and see how they impacted the industry and how they stood the test of time. I thank you all for listening and would appreciate any comments you would like to share with me. Also, I take requests for your favorite historical figures from this time period, so shout them out. Please check out our website at fursandfrontiers.com. Have a great weekend, everybody, and keep your powder dry. Mm -hmm.